I... <laughs> okay, we're going to get started. Is everyone ready? So, good evening, and thank you for coming to Conversation with the Artist Program. I would like to begin by acknowledging that we are gathered on traditional Treaty 6 lands, and to especially thank and welcome the Indigenous peoples from this region, and extend greetings to all who've traveled or reside here tonight as we join together. So my name is Christy Trinier, and I'm a curator at the Art Gallery of Alberta. And tonight, we're here to welcome Hannah Dirksen, and we're going to discuss her new exhibition, The Stories We Tell Ourselves About Ourselves, which opens tonight, right next door to us here in the RBC New Works Gallery, and runs until February 20th, 2017. Hannah's going to give us a little bit of background on her practice, previous exhibitions, and the works that have kind of led to the development of this new work. And then we'll go in together and we'll have a preview of the exhibition before the opening speeches. So the format, it seems a little formal, but it's not really that formal. Hannah's going to show some images, all ask questions and probably interrupt with a few questions <laughs> and then um, if you have any questions please just raise your hand or we'll have an open conversation at the end and also when we're inside the space. So I'm just going to read a few lines about her biography in case you don't know Hannah. So Hannah is a Calgary-based visual artist who received her Bachelor of Fine Arts from the Alberta College of Art and Design in 2012. And during her studies, she spent a year abroad at the New York Studio Residency Program in Brooklyn, New York, and at the California College of Art in San Francisco. Since graduating, she's exhibited in Brazil, the United Kingdom, USA, and throughout Canada. Hannah has developed installations for the Esker Foundation's project space, the 2015 Alberta Biennial of Contemporary Art here at the AGA, and at the Walter Phillips Gallery. So please join me in giving a big hand for Hannah Dirksen. Hi. <laughs> Take it away. Oh, okay. Uh... Ta-da. <laughs> uh, so, so this is a picture of uh, the, uh, the piece that I did for the Alberta Biennial that was here in 2015 in January. Uh, this piece was called the, um, sorry, piece was called and we have no place to leave and nowhere to come to. Uh, so what you're looking at is a uh, plexiglass, a mirrored plexiglass pyramid with a sort of fake uh, water resin waterfall coming down um, and two plinths with uh, bouquets of flowers. Uh, and then on this side, there are these curtain sections of the room, which I think the next picture will give you a better idea. So uh, with this piece, I was trying to create um, uh, an emotional space, but but something that resembled somewhere between a, a waiting room and a, a funeral home sort of viewing space. And I was thinking about it very much as a um, as an in-between space where you sort of stuck between one one world and another. I I worked at a funeral home for a long time as a tree waterer, so I would spend many hours uh, grabbing a big water truck and I would drive it out to the Fish Creek Park in Calgary and, and my job was to water trees, but 
there, there was no one checking in on me. I, I really could do whatever I wanted for <laughs> 10 hours as long as the truck wasn't in the garage. Uh, and uh, they, the person that paid me was different than the person that saw when I was showing up. Anyway, so I, I would return my truck to this funeral home and it would be after hours and there would be no one around. And sometimes I'd have to drop my pay sheets off in the office and walk through this funeral home uh, in the dark after hours. And they always had this really eerie classical music playing and speakers that went throughout the whole funeral home, which I, I imagine was was there to, to set the ambiance, which it, it did well. Uh, but sometimes I, I would have the opportunity to sneak into the, to the rooms uh, in, it, with no malice, but just investigating. Uh, and, and I really got a feel for the space. And, and I, there was something about that empty, emptiness and, um, and loss that, that hung with me. So, this exhibition actually, there was one element that was kind of alive in it though. So if you were in the space and you were in this kind of faux waiting room that you'd created, you'd be sitting in these seats and behind the curtains, there'd be kind of a little bit of fluttering and then you'd hear coyotes howling, like there's a recording in the distance. Yeah. Do you want so, to tell so a little bit about that? E each curtain, behind each curtain is one uh, fan and a speaker, and the speaker was playing these coyote howling noises, uh, as well as uh, the sounds of waterfall, which I recorded when I was out at Big Hill Springs, which was the other location where I would water the memorial trees. Uh, and the the coyote the coyote sounds I had had gone to great lengths out to my relative's farm to try and record these coyotes, but they were evading me every time I went out to record them. And shortly after I installed this show, there was a coyote that came outside of my apartment in Calgary, uh, in the middle of the city, uh, close to Sate and ACAD downtown. And he would visit me at night all alone. Anyway, so <laughs> that has nothing to do with the show other than that it was uh, kind of the, the, the trickster in the coyote that they only showed up <laughs> in a really unexpected place when they, when they weren't required. But I'm definitely interested in the coyote as um, as a character that represents the the unexpected and and the trickery that that life plays these games on us. So it, it, the the curtains in this piece sort of played as this reminder that even even when you're feeling stuck in a space and and maybe feeling a little hopeless there's still always something on that on that other side that's waiting to surprise you with with something that you you maybe aren't ready for but maybe it's exactly what you need more animate yes so let's begin with your practice of cutting and um, collaging flowers so maybe you can go to the next slide and I think there's a detail but you can see here these bouquets of paper flowers, which Hannah meticulously cuts and prepares. And one of my, actually the way that I met you was you submitted an application for the biennial and it came on kind of like tropical beach paper. It was printed out the whole thing with perfume and it was like this whole experience of like Hannah's aesthetic. It permeates everything that she does. So, you know, I had this tropical beach paper, these like wafts of perfume and I'm like, what is this? And it was all this cut paper kind of practices of making faux flowers. So the idea of the constructed beauty in the flower bouquets. 
um, was really something that we, we talked about a lot. And at first I thought that when I visited your studio, you had boxes and boxes of like cut travel magazines and you know catalogs and things like that. And I was interested that you were sorting them so particularly. Like these were not random pieces of scrap paper that you were putting together. And tonight they're even a little bit more special than normal, <laughs> but or risque maybe. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your practice of making these bouquets. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the the act of making the flowers. So I use these collaged images, uh, like Christy said, uh, from catalogs and photo books and old magazines. Um, uh, but the uh, the cutting and the and the and the making the the replicating of the floral arrangements and the plant shapes takes a lot of time. But also just the selecting of the images because it's uh, I have so much incredible collage material that I've collected over the years that it even just that part of it ends up taking an incredible amount of time, uh, which is something I'm sort of trying to. Uh, adjust to accept for myself that, that everything I do does take a lot of time and just because it doesn't necessarily feel like work flipping through a catalog and trying to pick these things doesn't mean that, that that's not also work. But uh, when I originally did the plants, I, I was thinking a lot about, um, about house plants specifically. They, they weren't flowers. Uh, and I was thinking about the, the fact that our house plants just sit at home with us and they, they're these living things, but they don't have any <laughs> freedom and they don't get to go anywhere. So I was picking these images of the beautiful places where everything is alive and everything is natural that, that the plants wish they one day could be in. So they, they kind of, they, their appearance represented everything that they would never be able to be. Um, and the, the process of of making them, although it is very repetitive and time-consuming, it's it's such a cathartic experience for me because I get to finally do something in my life where I, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, you get to spend a lot of time doing something and knowing that it's going to become this greater thing and just kind of, you can either delve into all the voices in your head or turn them off and just kind of work on on making these, whereas lots of the other objects um, and creations in my work require a lot more critical thinking and problem solving. These feel like like procrastination in art making form because you're able to do something productive but also just let your mind wander. Um, and, and I try and pick images that uh, that, that match the things I'm thinking about while I'm making the work, so, so conceptual ideas about the work itself or, or just how I'm feeling at the moment. And uh, as Christy mentioned, some of the ones in this show are a little bit more risque. I've got a collection of porn magazines that I uh, sourced off of Facebook and got friends to, to respond and provide me with their magazines that they had, and uh, in this work, I've been thinking a lot more about the the roles and the power that uh, that that women and their bodies and their sexuality uh, should be able to hold. So I've been using these images uh, as a way of supporting the ideas that 
that went into making this work. Hannah, like during the process of working with Hannah, she would send me collage after collage so that she communicates visually in this way. So I brought show and tell. Oh. <laughs> some examples, but you know, these pages and pages of the visual references that you catalog and collect. And so this is an ongoing practice of storing images, but also transferring them and printing them out, working with cut paper. And so the montage is a huge way of kind of processing visual information for you and creating these kind of mood boards or scenes. They kind of have a cinematic element to it. And one of these kind of focused on bouquet styles and why you send bouquets. And another one was a lot about movie clips and um, film sets. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how those started to evolve from these installations to your new work. Those two references of yeah. the bouquets in the cinema. Absolutely. So uh, the bouquets, um, they, they carry so much meaning. And I, and I was trying to figure out what... So I, I started making these houseplants, and I was thinking of them as these sort of helpless observers to our lives. Um, and then I moved towards the flowers. And flowers seem to carry so much cultural meaning for a lot of people. And, and I was thinking about the, the act of giving flowers, a, a bouquet of flowers, the, the, oper the, the situations in which we give flowers is so, so often a moment in which you, you, give, you know you need to give something, you know something has happened that deserves a gesture, but maybe you don't have the words to, to say what what needs to be said. <laughs> um, so I, I specifically, I can remember my, my friend had a baby and I was feeling like I you know, needed to do something important. I needed to buy her something and, and give a gift. But what do you give a baby? I mean, babies don't need anything. And, and so I, I bought her these flowers, just thinking like, here, I brought, look, I brought something. Um, but, but most commonly, I, I was thinking in this work about flowers as something that you give at a funeral, as, um, as a m sort of a memorial of something beautiful that, um, that we can look at and, and think of this, then this, that cycle of, of life and death. Um, and these flowers, because they are made of paper and wire, they don't ever die. They might fall apart and get ugly, but uh, <laughs> they will not die. Uh, so, so I'm thinking as these these things that, yeah, that, that remind us of these important events and, and stand in for those moments when you know that you should have something eloquent to say or something intelligent and supportive, and you don't, you can't find those words, but you still, you don't want to leave without having given a gesture. So that, I'm thinking that's the role that they're playing in, in this show, is that stand in for those moments. Uh, and then the other question was about? These kind of film sets. And oh. you watch and cull different kind of 1960s sci-fi movies and photographs of film sets as a part of your practice. Yeah, and I, I I get a lot of inspiration from from watching films, and I think that the the beauty of film is you can cut out all of the boring bits. You get to, right to the point. Uh, but I've always been really attracted to uh, 
situations that that y you can go into and feel like you're creating a narrative for yourself. Um, as a kid, I remember going to a, a museum and it was a beaver dam <laughs> and there was like an above water part and an underwater part and you could put on a little beaver hat and climb in and just sort of pretend you're in this underwater space and I think that that uh, the imagination of, of being able to find yourself in a space and, and write the script for the, the world and the experience that you want to have, I, I find a lot of satisfaction in, in that idea that you kind of get to go back, back and forth through time because you're, if, you, if you write the story in a way that, that doesn't feel right, then you can kind of go back and, and rewrite it. And so these sets, um, they, they're so full of opportunity and and anything that you can that you can kind of create can be can be turned can part of it is reflected back and that's something that your installations always seem to have as a a pattern of reflection, mirroring, and refraction of the image, so kind of splitting it and splicing the image or having cut mirrors mirror boxes. So you'll see when you walk into the space and we'll go in in two groups, but as soon as you enter, you realize you're surrounded by reflective surfaces. And you've kind of created this set where immediately the audience is immersed in it. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you think of this a little bit in terms of portraiture as well, self-portraiture? Sure. Well, first, in terms of the reflective surfaces, I think uh, a lot of the objects and the, the objects that I collect and the objects that I make, I'm trying to have those come come from the past, come from a from something that exists in the real world, so that when you look at it, you already have a relationship to what those things mean for you. So you can kind of create your own narrative in, in response to those objects and those things. And when you walk into the space, uh, to your right, the first thing you see is this reflection of yourself. So that's kind of just an added invitation to, to place yourself in the, in the gallery and in the environment. So it kind of invites you to, to remember that, that you are a part of this space. And as far as self-portraiture, I, I, all of my work comes from really personal places. So uh, the, the film is the most explicit form of self-portraiture and the fact that it's, it's all composed of footage that I collected on my iPhone or uh, I had a GoPro camera for a minute until I lost it and it got stolen. Uh, presumably because I went back to find it and it wasn't there. But I put up some really great signs at the <laughs> dog park <laughs> that did not guilt anyone into returning my GoPro to me. But uh, yes, anyway, so <laughs> the film is uh, collected from clips of my own life and trying to pick both the, the highest moments and the lowest. Uh, to, to show the, the oscillating between uh, those, those different experiences, but also uh, and in regards to the title of the show, which is a story we tell ourselves about ourselves, 
and that's uh, taken from a cultural anthropologist who's talking about the ways in which we, our, our play, the way we enjoy our spare time reflects who we are as a people. The, and, and the film that I wrote, uh, wrote, didn't write it, I edited it. terribly edited it on iMovie. Uh, but the, the clips I decided to show and the amount of time I focus on each thing, it, it really exposes a lot about myself and the way that I want to be seen. So even in the moments where I'm trying to talk about vulnerability and uh, sort of showing myself at my l maybe least powerful or least admirable, it's still my coming through my lens of how I want to be seen. And so for the, for the show in general, I think that's the biggest theme of, um, as, as a people and as an individual, we each kind of write this story and, and, and tell it back to ourselves of, uh, this is who I am, this is who we are, uh, and, th and this is how we want to be seen. And so that, that film is kind of really kind of a, a aware of the fact that it's, it's deciding the parts of my life that, that I want other people to, to see me through. And I think in, in that, when we make those choices and when we, when we write our stories, we leave out a lot of the ugly bits or the, the things that, uh, that happen or that we do or you know, we're able to justify away a lot of things. Um, and so the mirrors also serve in, in the ways that, that you can see kind of the backside of, of the work that I've presented. So the, the flower or the, yeah, the flowers that are made with these beautiful images that I've collected and curated on, on the front, that's what's visible when you walk in and look at the objects. But if you look in the mirrors, you can, you can see the tape behind them and the, and the folds and the mistakes. Uh, and I think that the, especially, it's becoming apparent in the last few months of kind of these ugly sides of culture that, that we like to pretend don't exist um, and, and these parts of our history that we just talk over uh, and every once in a while they'll bare their heads and then we have to address the things that, that, we've, that we've done and that our culture has created that are really dark and really unpleasant. This complicity and your kind of position as an observer, you, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but you are a dog walker and you're out observing nature or the construct of nature in kind of suburban areas of Calgary a lot. And your experience growing up since the 80s in that city, in and around that city, I mean, Calgary itself has all of these places with these faux names, so Bel Air, and Coventry Hills and Glengarry and so these kind of like approximations of other places that are you know homes for suburban communities many of these places have indicators of those named places that they refer to so colonnades or you know kind of architectural simulations that reference some other some other community and you often find yourself in Home Depot or you're always using these references to fake architecture, so like spray can bronze and faux marble and fake um, linoleum and these, these materials you use all the time. So can you describe a little bit what kinds of materials you're drawn to and why you're 
insistent on making them yourself, but representing these kind of fake architectural spaces and constructs? It's a big question. No, it's good. <laughs> and, and I'm just trying to think of where to start, because the, the, the fakeness of, of so much of what I do is a huge, a huge part. And um, I, think, I think fake, I was thinking about this earlier today, and, and fake sort of has this negative connotation, like it's, like it's a lie, like it's trying to be a thing that it's not, but it's trying to trick you into thinking that it's a thing. And I, uh, I don't think that I use these objects in a way that is trying to trick anyone. I think they're trying, that, that they are very vulnerable in being cheap and in being, um, an imitation of, of what it is that they're that they're imitating, and and that there is an authenticity in that. Um, real fake. <laughs> they're real we talked fake. about the real fake. So, but there's kind of like a path in that, and lots yeah. of people actually in Calgary have never been to these other places, so for them it is real. They're, well, and you know. it starts to feel real. I mean, and you're not necessarily thinking of it as, um, as anything else. But it, th I think that the nice thing about these materials that are the fake version of the expensive thing is that the real thing is very expensive, and that cuts a lot of people out from being able to access those kinds of materials and that kind of glamour. So the, the fake glamour is, is a very uh, kind of a diplomatic glamour. It's, it's a glamour that doesn't, um, that doesn't judge based on status or, or any kind of power dynamic. And, and I appreciate that. And I think that, that these things that are trying to be something else, there's, there's an underdog sort of affinity to it because they're, they're kind of pathetic, but they still have, you know, they have the hope, they have the aspiration of, of being better and bigger. Um, and, I, and I've always, I, I mean, I, I deal with a lot of sort of guilt, even just due to the level of, um, of privilege that I have, which, which is significant, but it's definitely not, a money-based <laughs> privilege. I don't have a lot uh, on my own, but... We were talking about this in reference to West Edmonton Mall. So, um, obviously, when Hannah came to town to begin researching her exhibition, we went to West Edmonton Mall to see Fantasyland and, you know, this image here, which is an installation you did, the Esker Foundation. Mm -hmm kind of reminded me of the Fantasyland suite experience. And so some of the footage in your film you actually took from our field trips to West Edmonton Mall. And Hannah is the one who introduced me to the internet wormhole if you have weeks that are free, um, called deadmalls.com, which is, um, it's like a summary of all the malls in Canada in basically North America, some in Canada, mainly in America, that are being documented as de-evolved spaces. And so there are shopping malls and strip malls that are abandoned and nature is beginning to take over. So you see vines creeping over escalators and essentially they, they become these creepy spaces that are 
they're current, like they're only maybe 20 years old, some of them, but they're abandoned, they're lost, and they're being taken over by this kind of natural force of decay. So this element of commercialization and um, the mall culture permeates a lot of your thinking about your work too, or you're interested in this and you reference it a lot. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the, I like to think of these abandoned malls as, as relics, as sort of these time capsules of, of something that, where there were these great intentions of, of this is a space where people will come together and they will, they will have everything under one roof. Uh, and, and within only a few decades, it, it turns out that that's not what, what is relevant to the time anymore. And I, I absolutely was a mall rat when I was in junior high, so I have a lot of moments. I have spent a ton of time in malls where I had no intention of buying anything, so I have a lot of emotional attachment to those spaces. Um, and I, I, my, my parents are really wonderful people that tried to uh, expose me and my brother to lots of culture and took us to museums and to, you know, the Aztec ruins, uh, Mayan ruins, and none of those places ever spoke to me. But I look at these photos of dead malls and I think, like, yes, that is uh, like an arc, <laughs> you know. It, uh, an experience that I would love to explore, and I and and I also then think about being in school as a youngster and and hating school. School was my and my poor parents again. They had to wrestle with me every morning to get me out of bed. But the idea of being in school when no one else was there, when the you know the teachers have gone to sleep, and <laughs> and you get to explore the space on your own. There's something about a, an abandoned mall that just seems like such an incredible sort of historical playground, uh, and as an artist as well, that that, that would be a, 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 a space that has so much um, baggage and, and emotion attached to it already, to be able to create in that environment and, and have kind of the ghosts of the life that was intended for it around you. Ghosts of capitalism past. The ghosts of capitalism, yeah. But also, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think there were good intentions in addition to the capitalist intentions of malls of bringing people together. And, and in the place we found ourselves in now, that a lot of buying happens online and happens... Um, not not in public spaces, so it, it's it's just done. But we have these massive things that are full of all this artificiality, forcing us to come together. That that was a complete failure, and they're just kind of these, yeah, these beautiful ruins. <laughs> I went to the very first mall actually earlier this year, which is in Norway. It's in or sorry, it's in uh, Sweden. It's in a city right in the north, and it's called Shopping. And it was designed, shopping was the name of it, and that's a, that's, that's it's, it's beautiful, that. it's a very kind of futuristic design, and it did have these kind of, all the urban design ideals, so a gathering place, a, a place for respite, and these faux constructed spaces, but it, it looked a lot like the sets that you create, um, and another reference that you talked a lot about was Vegas, of course, which your parents, the museums might not have had a huge impact, but the trip to Vegas sure did as a kid, but um, I have one last question because you you took a pretty pivotal trip to Glasgow, and it was part of this exchange of artists between um, 
Calgary and Glasgow. So there's a central figure, Yvonne Mullock, who if you were here for Charette Roulette, the third edition of Fabric, Yvonne Mullock is a transplanted uh, UK-based artist who's now in Calgary. And she helped to coordinate this exchange of artists and Hannah went over with a Calgary contingent to Scotland and she found this sculpture in the Botanical Gardens. And maybe you can talk a little bit about um, the exhibition tonight. When you go inside, you'll see two figures. So there's two actual characters within the set this time. And that's a new development in the way that you work is kind of, usually the sets are pretty vacant. There's no people or representations of people. And, and in this one, there's two very important references that you have. Yeah, and yeah, and often the yeah the the human absence is is the absence. But uh, the, so in this show, I have two sculptures that I made with uh, help of lovely, generous friends and family members. That uh, the first one you'll see when you come in is a male figure that's crouched um, in in a very desperate. Uh, disturbed fashion and, and he is based off of a sculpture that I saw in the Botanical Gardens and the sculpture is called Cain, My Punishment is More Than I Can Bear and Cain is a, a character from the Bible who is the first son of Adam and Eve and he is also the first murderer. He murders his brother uh, and the other sculpture is sort of a hybrid of two different characters that I found. One is a sculpture um, called The Genius of Evil, and it is a sculpture of Lucifer that is made by a Belgian artist. It's, it's a marble piece, and it was placed in a cathedral in Belgium, and the, the church community decided that the sculpture that he had built was sort of too... It was too supple, it was too young and kind of innocent and, and uh, pure looking. And so they removed his sculpture and they commissioned his older brother to create a rougher, tougher, more devilish looking version of the same sculpture. Uh, so, so it's the earlier version that, that I was really interested in that, that, that the, the church couldn't deal with the fact that, that Lucifer looked a little bit too inviting or too relatable or, or beautiful or something. And then the, the other uh, influence for that sculpture, because this is a female sculpture, is from a character from the film Metropolis. Uh, and she's, she is the whore of Babylon, who, is, uh, who shows up in the Bible in the, uh, the last chapter of the New Testament. And she is in Metropolis. She is sort of an erotic dancer for these uh, all this all male business crowd. Uh, and so, I, the the sculpture that I made that was the hybrid of those two is a very powerful, confident, comfortable uh, creation in in um, contrast to the to the just guilt and shame and disgust-stricken male figure that's in the front. And I, I was sort of attracted to these characters from the Bible that are presented as, as the, the darkest parts of humanity because I've, I've witnessed and I've observed so many horrible things happening in the world that are then justified by the best parts of the Bible. Um, 
you know, hate crimes done in the name of Jesus, and and so many, so many, you know, un, unkind, un. <laughs> Jesus-like acts. So, so I was interested in looking, using the the evil characters as as an alternative way to look at humanity and to maybe think, well, maybe we can expect some some lovely things from these characters. And I also project myself onto both of those sort of stances of the the crumpled up, just like wrecked uh, emotionally. Uh, frustrated and, and feeling com like complete garbage sort of male figure and the you know powerful taking 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 the power of the of the whore back <laughs> female character so so those as far as self portraiture are really um, two sides of uh, of myself and, and what I'm thinking about that so I think that we're ready to go inside. And you're going to see an installation that has um, this kind of quality of bringing you inside an environment. It has all kinds of different references. You'll th see things that are futuristic, but also incredibly familiar. And they're all, there's a lot of elements that are handmade by Hannah, including all of the benches, all of the flower bouquets. A lot of the mirror pavilions and plinths have been made by the artist. So we're going to split into two groups because there's a big, <laughs> big group here tonight. So maybe we'll take the first 20, 25 people and we'll go inside, ask a question with Hannah, and then we'll switch out the next group. So maybe we'll just give Hannah a big... But wait. Oh, wait, sorry. But wait, yes. photos. The last one, do you want to talk about the very last one? No, I just... <laughs> I just thought we should show them since we had them. <laughs> we forgot about the very last one. Do you want to say something about the bar? Let's talk a little bit about the bar because there is a reference to the bar in this exhibition. Uh, so, so this is a piece I did at the Walter Phillips Gallery and it was part of a show called Seance Fiction which was curated by Peter Rake. Uh, and the, the show was investigating a lot about, um, about ghosts and about the, the this idea of, of artists imagining the past and the future. And, and this bar is a, it's a smaller version of a replica of the bar from the film The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's film, uh, based on Stephen King's novel. So I uh, was using a lot of the baggage from that film uh, to give context. To, so in the film, Jack Nicholson's character, Jack, sits at the bar and he's, is sort of slowly losing his mind while he goes through this cabin fever of taking care of this empty hotel through the winter. Uh, and he's, he's just, you see him talking to himself and all of a sudden he's met by this apparition of a bartender who provides him with uh, bourbon. And so I was thinking of, of the bar as this place where you can, you know, you, a hotel bar specifically where you come and you, you're in between one place and another and you're feeling kind of isolated and you're given the opportunity to, if you speak to someone, to tell them whatever you want about yourself. You're, you're able to tell your story and, and in this specific sculpture, you're, when you sit at the bar, you're faced most, well, 
first of all, you're faced with these objects, but secondly, you're faced with your with your reflections, you're, you're challenged by yourself. And the objects that I collected were uh, all, all secondhand objects. So they all had a first, a first life. This is their second life. They'd been abandoned for one reason or another. They no longer represented the people who had them or the people who had them had died and their family members didn't value them anymore. Uh, and, and a lot of the objects in, in this collection sort of reference uh, an exotification of other cultures in a really sort of violent colonialist way. Um, and so sitting there, you're reminded of, of the pain that has happened in the past before. And, and it's also, a, it's a dry bar. So it's the bar before, in the film, when the, when the, when the bartender shows up, you're, you then look back and you see the bar and it's filled with booze. Uh, it's it's a and it's a live place. You're in the gold room, and there's dancers, and it's and it's all happening. But but this is sort of before the that apparition, and and all you are left with is is kind of this reminder of uh, of what what's come, what's what's led to this moment, and and so sort of the mistakes of the past, and 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 that's definitely something I'm thinking of in this in this show too, and, and I, I'm sort of, as I'm rambling on, I'm starting to realize that this show sounds really bleak, um, and it's not. It, there's definitely <laughs> beauty and hope and a sense of humor, <laughs> uh, which I think are absolutely important if, if one wants to make any positive uh, changes, <laughs> is to be able to look at the mistakes and laugh and, have a drink and <laughs> go play in an abandoned mall where no one is going to give you a ticket. I think that, well, after you see Hannah's work, you'll definitely <laughs> start to notice the nuances of these kind of like yeah. archaeologies of bar culture and the classification of how you're kind of creating these sets a little more closely. So we'll go in and then maybe um, we'll separate into the two groups and we'll do questions with the artists inside the space together. So please join me and we'll give you a big hand of applause. Congratulations, Hannah.